Welcome to In Tune, a podcast exploring the benefits of music for mental health and well-being. In Tune is brought to you by the University of Global Health Equity. At the University of Global Health Equity, we believe that building bridges across sectors can radically change the way we conceptualize health and well-being, as well as how we teach and deliver healthcare around the world. This is why we created Hamia Festival an annual platform bringing together creative and health sectors. Intune will engage musicians, researchers, mental health practitioners, and other specialists on how music can be used to support psychological, emotional, and social well-being. I am Sarah Gatoni from the University of Global Health Equity and your host through this podcast series. In the first episode of this series, we explored what music is, and how its definition varies with culture, time, and function. We arrived at a working definition of music as an affiliative communicative medium, which is not unimodal. We also saw that music can be instrumental in both traditional and contemporary healing practices, as evidenced by Dr. Tasha Golden and her colleagues' scoping review of nearly 350 studies, two-thirds of which found music to be better than various alternatives at treating or mitigating the symptoms of serious mental illness. As the World Health Organization defines it, mental health is a state of well-being in which an individual realizes his or her own abilities, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively, and is able to make a contribution to his or her community. The ability to engage with and contribute to one's community is therefore integral to mental health. For reasons such as poverty, unemployment, discrimination on the basis of age, nationality, disability, race, and more, some individuals and communities are marginalized, are unable to fully participate in social, economic, political, and cultural life, are, in other words, socially excluded. Social exclusion has a bidirectional relationship with mental health. Poor mental health can result in forms of social exclusion such as stigma, discrimination, and difficulty participating in employment, educational, legal facilities, and so on. At the same time, social exclusion can lead to poor mental health. Unemployment, for example, can lead to loneliness, itself associated with lower cognitive function. Perceived discrimination is associated with depression, psychological distress, and anxiety. In this episode, we explore how music can promote social inclusion and facilitate community engagement. We'll be speaking to Dr. Chris Nicholson, music therapist and program development manager for Musicians Without Borders, and to Dr. Asia Alsop, who studies music and mindfulness and provides clinical care as a resident in the Department of Psychiatry at Yale University. Our first conversation is with Dr. Nicholson, who has performed around the world as a classical guitarist and is program development manager for Musicians Without Borders. Before taking up this role, He worked at a clinic for people living with HIV and facilitated community music leadership training programs with refugee populations and vulnerable young people in East Africa. Dr. Nicholson completed his PhD at the University of Winchester, where he researched how identity features in the accounts of participants and providers of music-making programs for people who have emigrated seeking asylum from war or persecution. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Nicholson. Could you tell us a bit more about your work with Musicians Without Borders? What did you do? What was that like? 
So in Rwanda, Musicians Without Borders works in partnership with a organization there, which is an HIV clinic, which also offers psychosocial care to its patients and to its members. And my role in that program initially was as a music therapist. And I worked with some of the youth who were not taking their medication well. So young people who were not following the medication regime. In Rwanda, there's excellent access to HIV medication, free access to HIV medication. But there's still psychosocial obstacles to them individually managing to take the medication well. So I worked with some of those young people to try and support what they were going through, to try and understand some of the reasons for their behavior, to help them find ways to move past that behavior to something a bit more constructive, a bit more healthy for them. And then we had this wider program there too, which is to give access to music making that wasn't facilitated by me. You know, I'm a music therapist. I was working with some people, but we then trained a whole group of young people to be able to make music with young children. So we had youth who became community music leaders and ran music programs at the clinic and they ran music programs with different organizations, worked in refugee camps. And we replicated the successes in Rwanda, in Uganda, in Tanzania, in Democratic Republic of Congo, lots of different contexts, all using music as a way of interacting and a way of building community and connecting people. And my role there was as a trainer, as a manager, as a leader of this approach. So you mentioned taking a psychosocial approach to dealing with health issues, for instance, with people living with HIV. Why does this matter? How does building community affect health in general and mental health in particular? Social exclusion is something that can come along with health issues. And sometimes that's because of physical reasons and other times that's because of attitudes and societal reasons. HIV is a good example of a virus which came to be stigmatized hugely. So people living with HIV still do suffer stigma around the world. So then the initial health issue people are apparently facing is multiplied and shifts because of the social exclusion. People start to actually suffer with something else. So it's not the virus then people are struggling with, it's other people's attitudes. And stigma breaks down people's confidence. It breaks down their ability to interact, their willingness to interact. It plays out as people feeling less valuable, feeling less worthy, because that's the message that they're given. On the topic of identity, I was wondering if you could take us through your research on how identity features in music making programs. What was the process and what were some of your findings? People that arrive seeking asylum, sometimes they're housed in centres, they call them reception centres. So you get groups of people in a city, in a particular centre, before their claim has been processed. You know, you arrive, seek asylum, and there's a process to decide if indeed you should receive asylum. I spoke to some musicians that were working in those centres, and they would go and knock on doors. If they knew a family had arrived, they would go and knock on the door and invite the children to come and participate in a music group. And they would say that the first response was often surprise and a bit of fear, a sense in the children of, is this an obligation? Do I have to go to this music group? Is this something, am I going to be punished if I don't go? But then to be invited and included, you know, just to be treated really sweetly and to be shown kindness. There's somebody sitting and playing music with you for an hour. That alone was quite a powerful recognition for people that they, in the very core of it, they were included like everybody else. They weren't something different. And then within music groups, music facilitators, participants, they spoke about appreciating people's ideas. 
for example, if you and me are drumming together, Sarah, and you suddenly come with a new rhythm, I've got two choices, right? I can either reject your rhythm, ignore it. I can play louder than you, drown out your rhythm, or I can listen to your rhythm and accept it and maybe even start playing the same rhythm as you. So within that small interaction, there's different ways that we can interact, one of which is really recognizing you, listening to you, um, valuing your idea enough to take it on. In that micro interaction, I can show you some recognition. Your idea is important. Your music is important. That thing that was inside your head that you dared to share with me, I'm valuing and appreciating and recognizing. So that's another level of recognition. And then there's even more levels of recognition, which are to do with achievement. And the thing with music, the time you put into it normally shows in the way that you play. So if a child, for example, has the opportunity to perform at a small concert and everyone claps, that's a recognition of their accomplishment. This reminds me of what we spoke about earlier regarding your work at the Mahama refugee camp in eastern Rwanda where young people who were themselves refugees were trained to help others, and how that in itself becomes a form of recognition, a way of recognizing what someone in a relatively vulnerable situation might still have to contribute. Could you tell us a bit more about that work? There's always that weird dynamic, right, where in lots of healthcare settings, where there's a kind of leader set up, it's often a hierarchy built in. I think we always need to be aware of the dynamic, the hierarchy, the message that we're sending. If we're trying to set up music making program or any kind of humanitarian effort, that we're not setting up some quite unhealthy reproduction of hierarchy. Even that image of me as a white English guy going into a refugee camp and making music with people. I don't know your response to that, but my response is a bit uncomfortable. The danger would be that there's a certain post-colonial dynamic being reproduced there. You've got a group of 50,000 people. Statistically, some of those are going to be musicians. And some of those musicians are going to be very good musicians. And some of those musicians are going to be very good at working with children. And some are going to be charismatic. And some will be a bit softer, you know, a bit more introverted. So then the role that Musicians Without Borders took was just to see if there was a way that we could support and share some experience and even connect people to a bit of a network of other musicians doing that kind of work. The end result of the work was a group of 30 people that lived in the camp who were running music activities with the kids. And of course, they were the experts to do that work. They were brilliant at that work. And the effect that you're talking about, where that also becomes an act of recognizing people's skills and allowing people to take the status which is actually theirs, Coming back to my research, a thing I found, again, about the way that identity featured for people was that within music making, people could be repositioned. A lot of the people that were in the music making groups I was looking at were really in positions that were very marginalised. Groups of refugees are often marginalised. Even the location that they're in, I, I talked about those reception centres in the UK and Netherlands, often they're very much out in the countryside on the edge of towns in areas that... Um, uh, not many people are living in with bad transport links. You often get people very much marginalized. And then also the social marginalization too. I found that people spoke a lot about how music could be used to allow people to be positioned away from being marginalized, take on roles within music groups that were really central, take on roles of leadership, have music from the country they were born in be central. 
as opposed to that music also being marginalized. You mentioned that marginalization can look like various things, a lack of recognition for one's cultural music, for example, but also living in a socially isolated area with poor infrastructure. On one level, social exclusion is about how one feels alienated, without agency. And you've illustrated how music can intervene on this level, restoring a sense of belonging and accomplishment among refugees, for instance. On another level, social exclusion is a bit more structural. Can music promote social inclusion on a macro level? I'm going to give an example. I think that's the best way to try and answer this. Around about 2014, 2015, there was this uh, situation which people refer to as the refugee crisis in Europe. The way this was presented was that there was thousands and thousands of refugees coming and migrating, and there was this massive migration of people. And it was represented primarily in two ways. It was represented as a threat, and the other way it was represented was as a humanitarian issue in terms of people's need. So you had a huge group of people all being represented in the same way. The result of that is that you lose the individuals involved, and you lose the history of why people are migrating. And you lose the fact that our countries in Europe were responsible in some ways for the situation. And those discourses, that representation marginalized refugees that were coming because they represented as um, voiceless masses of people. And part of addressing that, I think, is about disrupting that overall discourse. That if the loudest voices are saying refugee crisis, humanitarian disaster at our shores or threat, the way to break that down is to start to disrupt it at every level, which means telling people's stories, telling the stories of individuals. It means telling histories. Musicians are powerful people in that process. Musicians arriving from different countries have a unique way of expressing themselves. They don't just need their words. They also have music. They have songs. They have cultural resources. Musicians have a particular role in any situation which is about communicating and holding on to something true, holding on to stories, expressing stories, expressing culture. Musicians in the countries where people are arriving can also have a very special role because they have a way of meeting people, a way of welcoming people, a way of interacting. And I think all of those acts help to disrupt these bigger discourses which are being wielded and which are very loud and at best only in part true. Dr. Nicholson shared his perspective on what music therapy can do for refugees, a traditionally marginalized group. Community music making can be a way of gaining and expressing welcome, recognition and a sense of accomplishment. It can also be a tool for challenging greater narratives that uphold various forms of social exclusion. Our next guest, Dr. Azie Alsop, is a first-generation American who grew up in Trinidad. He studied at North Carolina Central University before carrying out his research training in the Thai lab at MIT as part of the Harvard Medical School MIT MD-PhD program. Dr. Alsop studies music and mindfulness as tools that help enhance wellness and pro-social behavior. He is the co-founder of Renaissance Entertainment, a company that uses music, science, and community building to promote a culture of wellness. Thank you for making the time to speak with us, Dr. Alsop. To start us off, could you please tell us more about your background with music? Yeah, so 
I was introduced to music really at a very young age because my dad is a multi-instrumentalist um, and a vocalist. My mom also sings. She would like sing to me, you know, when I was a baby, I would go to rehearsals and things like that. My dad also functions um, as a chaplain and a minister. And so I also got exposed to a lot of music within spiritual settings and church settings. And so at a really early age, I knew that music had a really incredible capacity, not only to sort of synchronize people and bring them together, um, but to really offer these really incredible spaces for healing and emotional catharsis. Throughout high school, I played in all the bands, had piano lessons and drum lessons. I ended up playing the trombone, the two-val bugle during high school. And then in college, while my major was in biology, I also studied philosophy and jazz studies as minors. And so even there, I was doing a lot of music through my MD, PhD. You know, I was playing as a professional musician. During my time at MIT, while I was doing my PhD, I got a fellowship to study at Berklee College of Music. And that sort of took me deeper into exploring piano and, and performance. And then around my third year of medical school, this was after graduate school, I, you know, launched my independent, you know, music career. Since then, you know, I've been just putting out my original music and performing my original music and just really trying to create spaces where um, we can bring music to the community to help not only build it up, to, but to offer spaces for people to heal. Right. And how does your scholarship of music figure into this greater goal of creating spaces for healing through music? Coming up within sort of a, a Western framework, the academic framework, there was always a little bit of a dissonance between my creative musical artist side and then my scientific uh, sort of medical side. And I was always looking for ways to come to sort of a natural synergy, which I knew existed because both of those things existed in me. And throughout history, there have been many great thinkers who also were intimately involved with different forms of art. And so I was always looking for a way to sort of bring music into the academic space. And, you know, as I got into the field of psychiatry, I realized that there was actually already a lot of evidence for music having real effects on emotional regulation, stress management, and social cohesion, you know, bringing people together. My field of study and what I trained in, in graduate school was, you know, social behavior and really looking at what are the mechanisms that drive social cohesion, pro-social cognition. Um, it was a very actually natural fit for me to start to bring music into the academic space. And so what we did um, was created the Music Mindfulness Study and the Music Mindfulness Working Group. And we created an intervention that is community-based in which people have access to what we call music mindfulness sessions. These are 15-minute daily sessions in which they have access to music that's been intentionally created to create a platform and a stimulus for mindfulness. And then we can use that to sort of give them mindfulness instructions that help them with stress management, uh, self-confidence, and really being able to put themselves in the best place to function optimally. We also have a weekly mindfulness class that they attend, and that's sort of in a virtual group setting. But really, the idea is that we know music has these effects. How can we better understand the ways in which music can be brought into the academic space, the medical space to heal? And then for me, even more importantly, how can music be brought directly to the community and just skip that whole infrastructure um, to offer those spaces? A bit of a clarifying question. I wonder if you consider the musical intervention happening in this study to be a form of music therapy. I'm asking because you come across various forms or various practices within music therapy, some of them being more participatory than not, some being concerned with the aesthetics of what is made, 
some being improvisational. So I'm wondering what precisely the musical intervention in this case was. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Like music therapy is a very broad term and it can look a lot of different ways. And the evidence really is that a lot of the different ways in which it does look actually still work. So whether it's participatory or someone's just listening or whether it's improvisation, um, whether it's group drumming, like all of these things have been shown to work in different clinical settings. And so in this particular intervention, it's not something in which the participants are creating music. The music has already been created. Um, and so they listen, you know, with headphones to this music and then sort of overlaid on top of that music is a set of mindfulness instructions that help guide them, you know, to different practices that can get them to, you know, better emotional regulation, stress management, build their pro-social cognition um, and help them to function optimally. Thank you for that clarification. Your study is at this point in time exclusively focused on people of African descent, PADs. What informs this decision? Yeah, so right now the study is focused on people of African descent. You know, there are a few reasons for that. One is that I think that is a group that has been disproportionately affected by um, not only social stress and social trauma in the form of white supremacy and racism, particularly today within the continental U.S., but also they disproportionately don't have access to the same sorts of resources within the field of psychiatry and then are disproportionately affected by COVID-19. and so. Part of this was like, we wanted to first tailor this intervention to a group that sort of needs it most because of all these different ways in which the current infrastructure doesn't serve them well. Some of the ideas that if it works within this group, then, you know, we can make modifications to see how effective it can be in other groups. A lot of the research within music and mindfulness, particularly within the United States, is done in predominantly people of European descent. And so all of the data from music really working and mindfulness, you know, working within clinical settings, if you look at who are the participants in those studies, it's very disproportionately people of European descent. And so there's really um, lacking research within people of African descent about how these sorts of interventions can work within, again, the sort of the medical framework in, in Western society. On the continent of Africa, music has been used you know, for generations as forms of healing and as a way of building community. And so it's not that we don't know that it works. It's just, again, figuring out how it works within the United States and within that sort of social structure and then figuring out why and how. The concepts of community and connectedness seem central to how you study music and perhaps why you make music. Why was it important for you to explore these topics? Why do we need to be prosocial? Why do we need to feel included? From a biological perspective, human beings really needed social structure in order to optimize our chances of survival. You know, if you were not part of a social group and weren't able to integrate within a social group, your chances of survival as an early human were very low. We've evolved to really need social input and social connection in order to function optimally. And there's an evolutionary basis for that. And we can see that now, you know, even in rodents, if you put them into social isolation, you see dramatic changes in areas of the brain like the dorsal raphae. Um, and in humans, we know if we put them in isolation, that has, you know, real effects on the way that the brain functions, on different um, stress hormones in the body. And so it seems like for human beings to function optimally, they really need to be embedded within a social structure. We also see this in psychiatry. Those who have the hardest time functioning 
and those who struggle the most to get back to some baseline level of functioning when they've you know, had to deal with some mental illness or mental condition are those who are not connected to a real social support. From a spiritual perspective, I think there's also this desire for us to be expansive and to go beyond sort of the limitations and constraints of our personal perception and the egoic constraints. And so oftentimes when we see things happening within a spiritual framework, and music is always, you know, a part of this too, we see groups of people getting together to try to unify around some bigger theme or some bigger idea of connection. And that seems to be really good for wellness as well. And so I think there are multiple ways in which this idea of social connection and sort of pro-social cognition becomes really vital. When we look at humans today and sort of some of the big challenges that we have, we will see that it will require us to really continue to evolve in the social domain in order to face those challenges and, and overcome them. You've made reference to not only making what comes of your research something that is accessible within academia, but also within communities. So I'm wondering if you have a vision for how something like these papers, this research, this knowledge can be used as a daily practice. You know, the training path that I'm on and the reason why I choose to continue to exist within the academic space is because I've always viewed it as a vehicle for changing society and changing community, changing culture. And if you look back into the period of the Renaissance, or you look back into ancient comedic culture and, and things like that, the science and really the ability to create information and knowledge and understand the way in which we work and the world works has always been sort of the driver for making changes within society. And so the research that I'm doing is aimed at that, is really asking questions that we can then take back to society and say, hey, look, this actually works. How can we implement it? And again, the setting that we're doing this study in is within the community setting. And so, you know, once we have the data and, and you know, if the data, um, if our hypothesis is correct, you know, and, and this intervention works, it, is, it, it has already been done in a setting in which people in the community can just immediately start doing it. So there's no real transformation that has to happen. We've already created the intervention in the community. We're already studying it in the community. And so if our hypothesis is correct, then we have an intervention that we can directly take to the community and say, hey, this works and it works for you. And we know that because we actually have the data to show that. Um, and I think, you know, in a society that hasn't really placed music in its rightful place or placed practices like mindfulness in its rightful place, I think having the data to support someone doing something that's different, right? People will need to know why should I do things differently than what, how I've been doing them and how is doing things differently going to help me? And so I think if I have the data to show, hey, if you start doing this thing, it can actually help you with the problem that you're having. I think it's a very powerful way to, to sort of entice people to undergo the types of processes that I think ultimately will be transformative for society. That was Dr. Alsop with insight into how human beings have a biological and spiritual need for connectedness. We tend to need to be prosocial. We tend to know when we're not included. Dr. Alsop's research, like Dr. Nicholson's music therapy practice, gives insight into how music can be a tool for social inclusion and community engagement. Not just by what is practiced, but how it is practiced. By researching music among groups that are traditionally underrepresented. By repositioning recipients of music therapy away from the margins and into roles where they can be key contributors. This is the power of music. 
A great thanks to you for listening in, and a big thanks to Dr. Chris Nicholson and Dr. AZA also. Stay tuned for more episodes in this series where we talk to musicians, researchers, and mental health practitioners on how music can be used to support psychological, emotional, and social well-being.